This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is joining me from Madison, Wisconsin, Levi Funk of Untitled Art and Funk Factory Guseria. Welcome to the podcast, Levi. Thanks for having me. We've been uh, enjoying Levi's spontaneously fermented and wild ale beers for a long time, and more recently, the uh, really creative output from the Untitled Art brand that has... Uh, um, Kind of came out of nowhere and uh, and uh, took our breath away with a few of these beers. Excited to have this conversation. Talk about designing creative beers, about developing a palate, about uh, uh, understanding the flavors, about uh, achieving interesting flavors in beers, and uh, uh, dialing in those right blends of flavors. Um, I mean, heck, we've even really loved the Untitled Art uh, Hard Seltzer, but I'm not going to push you too much on that because uh, you know. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We can talk about it because there's a, I think there's a uniquely flavorful aspect to the hard seltzer that you're producing. And, uh, you know, so, um, appreciate that flavor forward approach that you take in all the beers that you make. We're going to dive into that before we do nearly 2000 breweries across the U S Canada and Mexico partner with GND chillers, innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers you've heard on this very podcast all trust GND to chill the beer that you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, haze for days in your IPAs. Carry Bio Haze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance for your hazy recipe. Made with all natural materials, Bio Haze is a free flowing microgranular powder that binds with protein molecules in beer that form polyphenol protein complexes to produce a cloudy haze. The unique product can be added to final beer to give your beer that famous haze. Find out more about Bio Haze at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Levi, walk us through some of your brewing history, how you got where you are today, um, how the multiple beer brands developed, um, what drove your interest in getting into the beer business uh, in the first place, and uh, yeah, yeah, how'd you get to where you are now running two different uh, beer brands? Sure, yeah, uh, I started off just being a consumer, drinking beers, got you know, a lot of people, a friend introduced you to craft beer and coming from Wisconsin with New Glarus around, it was, uh, Spotted Cow was always an option and something that I drank, but getting really into craft beer happened later in life. And then, uh, from there, you know, entering the world of trading and uh, seeking out different flavors and different styles and um, wanting to try the best or the highest rated examples of those styles. I think that part was pretty formative in developing an understanding for what made beer 
like an excellent example of right. that style and appreciating different styles for what they are. And, you know, not everything has to be X bomb, right? In the U.S., we always want like bombs of flavors, but uh, being able to understand what this style is and, and what makes that a good uh, representation of that style. And also forming uh, an opinion of what styles I like and what styles I don't. Um, I've never been a fan of like, French saisons. It's not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> and people have a hard time believing that I don't drink those. But it was through that you know, friend group of trading and trying beers and reviewing them um, uh, really formulated my beer palette. And was my introduction to sour beer, and then to Belgian lambic, then learning about how those beers are made, and not having any examples being made locally. Uh, so if I wanted to try a, a beer in that vein, it was usually pretty expensive to acquire those beers. Either if they were on the shelf, you know, they're expensive or if I'm trading for them or purchasing them overseas and paying for shipping, it was, it was expensive. So I uh, was interested in seeing if those beers could be made in the U.S. just as a theoretical, like how, how would this look like or what would be required? Or, and then, you know, and also seeing some of the American breweries early on, like the Russian Rivers and the Allagash, who were the Lost, Lost Abbey was big back then too in making sour beers and, and starting to dabble into spontaneous right um, at that time uh, in the u.s a sour beer was only good for as much acidity as it had so sure sure the bigger the sour bomb it was the better it was perceived and uh, i didn't really agree with that i didn't care for the rip your teeth apart sour beers right um and much preferred the balanced nuanced sours and, uh, so as i was looking into how this could look like in the u.s uh, both from a logistical and operation standpoint but also a legal standpoint for doing a blendery not a brewery you know i had to talk to ttb talk to the stage and they kind of figured it out and messed around with a barrel in my basement, a couple barrels. Um, and then it was from there I got teamed up with a local brewery for a few years and started doing spontaneous beer up there. Um, and then... I remember some of those. Uh, I remember receiving a couple of bottles years and years and years ago from from that generation of your brewing. And, yeah. Uh, uh, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and so that was just an exploration of right. can these beers be produced? I mean, at the time, they, it, people didn't even know if they could be like made in the U.S. Right. Or can it only be made in this certain region? And that was the point where you all, Jester King and others were, you know, of course, Allagash had shown, but Allagash is also at a really high latitude and uh, has very cold winters and um, a much more Belgian-ish, you know, kind of uh, environment. And there were still lots of folks who 
weren't convinced that spontaneous beer could be made anywhere else. Certainly yeah, I mean, we knew that Balagash was doing it, and they had built up their cool ship room, and um, I think there might have been some early releases out of that program, but it was still very uh, uncertain on if cool shipping would work in the U.S. And here in Wisconsin, we have a similar climate. We're very close to what uh, a Belgian season looks like. We, have, we probably have a, uh, probably a month longer season than Belgium does. So um, actually for us, the question later became not if you could cool ship, but how low of a temperature can you <laughs> cool ship in? And there's uh, one night it was negative 20 degrees and we were cool shipping. And it was like, well, will this work? You know, but can yeah. you, was it going to pick up enough? Is what's in the air at this temperature? Uh, it worked fine, but um, there was just a lot of uncertainty around spontaneous fermentation with the American brewing community, uh, both professionally and as home brewers. Um, and so, so you, you started by working with another brewery who would you know, brew the wort on their system, and then you would cool ship and, and ferment there in a kind of alternating proprietorship or contract kind of arrangement. But then you moved to open the Funk Factory Guzeria to, you know, have a kind of aging, blending, and retail space. Um, do you brew on site? I, I apologize, yeah. I've never been there. So I, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, so that's the the reason that Guzeria is in the name is that we aren't a brewery. It's not Funk Factory Brewing. Uh, we don't brew. We're a blending facility. So. Um, but taking goose and the sharia sure. ending that's latin based or i i spent some time in latin america in spain and costa rica uh in latin america so i know that yeah <laughs> but anyway i had like a, a, a gooseria sounds time, fun yeah i had some time with spanish and so i right made the amalgamation of words to best represent what i thought this uh, brewery was what, what it was, you know, what our operations would look like, what the purpose of it was. So, yeah, finding um, breweries that would brew wort um, and, and just sell us the wort uh, was initially, uh, it, it wasn't that part of a challenge, actually. Uh, most breweries their bottleneck is not their brew house. Their bottleneck is fermenters or packaging capability. So if you ask somebody, hey, can you brew a batch of this recipe and I'll take it right after the right after it leaves the boil kettle, they're like, yeah, sure, we'll make a couple bucks here. Great. And then you tell them and, you need a, a turbid uh, mash. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and then their, their shift brewer is like, hey, who agreed to this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I took the uh, the Cantillon turbid mash recipe and translated it to uh, the gallons and Fahrenheit, and um, you know started working with that, and we've had to adjust that because of water hydration. Uh, some of those steps don't make sense. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think that's an interesting one when you, so, you know, obviously the, the smartest place to start is using that traditional Belgian Lambic recipe um, mm -hmm. with a 
heavy wheat component and this turbid mash and trying to you know produce this kind of highly dexterous you know um hard difficult to ferment kind of wort that'll allow um you know that kind of fermentation process to be very slow and ongoing um you know how but at the same time you're also trying to produce beer that ultimately creates flavors that you find interesting pleasurable and engaging you know for consumers and so um with the local fauna and microflora of of your own region to create something that's of your place um how over the, the you know, number of years did you tweak that kind of recipe and some of the technical processes to better fit the kind of beer that you wanted to make yeah we haven't actually tweaked the recipe at all it's just uh adjusting it for modern and yeah modern brew systems okay i mean if you are supposed to put in x gallons in your first step and then pull out x gallons and there's nothing to pull out that means you need to add more water to that first step (laughs) Uh, yeah so (laughs) adjusting the the steps in the turbo mash recipe is all that we've had to do to just like physically make that recipe work on the system um but you know we've dealt with many different issues and in that recipe and and it, it isn't so much changing the recipe it's preparing the breweries yeah uh, that this is going to go wrong and you're gonna have to figure it out so uh, preparing them so the mash doesn't get stuck or uh we've broke the rakes at three or four different breweries so oh, no. that's a very common like, yeah. to try to do this first edition and run your rakes it's gonna shear the pin and that's it's gonna get messed up so uh that trying to prepare for those kind of issues uh, as, as we've gained more knowledge and, and done it over the years. Um, and usually for the first time that we do the recipe at the brewery, I kind of treat it as a throwaway batch. Um, we, we either won't use the beer that comes out of it or we'll use part of it or we'll, we'll do like a, quicker fermentation on on that word to create a different product that won't go into our lambic program but um uh yeah it's it seems like every brewery needs to do it once and then they figure out the little quirks on their system and and then they yeah then they get figured out works a lot better the next time let's talk a little bit about uh, ingredient selection um, you know because uh, what you brew with certainly does matter in terms of malt and hops and this kind of thing before we do that five star chemicals and supply is your leading provider of cleaning sanitizing and adjunct chemicals for breweries throughout north america and internationally all products have been formulated with safety equipment material and quality in mind interested in trying their products contact support at fivestarchemicals.com to inquire about a free craft brew sample pack and only pay the shipping 
just mentioned that you hear it here on the podcast. Cheers to beer. Also, Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you bring five gallons or five barrels. Get all the hops you want when you want them. They source the highest quality hops from the Yakima Valley and premium growing regions around the world so that you have access to the largest hop portfolio possible, even hard to find varieties like Citra, Nelson Sauvin, and Galaxy. Homebrewers visit yakimavalleyhops.com and wholesale accounts find them at spothops.com. So of course, when we're talking about, um, you know, Lambic style beers and spontaneous beers and that kind of Belgian tradition, um, you know, quality ingredients matter, aged hops tend to matter. Um, talk to me about, uh, you, know, you know, some of that ingredient thought that went into this and then how, um, you know, since again, some of these are products, certainly aged hops is, well, you can now buy from some uh, from hops brokers blends that include aged hops generally becomes something that you have to create a program around yourself. Um, talk to me about kind of developing that ingredient process, uh, you know, for your beers, for the spontaneous beers. Yeah, um, the ingredients are pretty simple. Uh, these are yeast driven flavor beers. Uh, so the ingredients, yeah, obviously you want quality ingredients but for us it's pretty easy with breeze in our backyard to get locally malted <laughs> what you know whatever we want we can get from breeze easily and then even we've had wisconsin grown grain that was like small batch stuff that breeze malted for central waters and we were buying some of their stuff um i think that it's an element, um, but again, these beers derive most of their flavor from the fermentation, from the yeast. So it's when you're when you're doing these beers as compared to other beers, you're you're not viewing the flavor development and fermentation as a tweak process, right? This is something you're building, knowing that it's 18 months before you really start touching barrels and you're building it for a three-year aging process um, and getting comfortable in, in what that means. I mean, there's charts you can find online about the uh, different stages of uh, lambic fermentation and what microbes are doing at different stages. And I think getting comfortable with that and internalizing that as you look at these beers and and how they're going to ferment and develop an age is very important. Um, knowing that you, you make this beer and it ferments and three months later, it might taste like crap, but uh, don't throw it away because that's, you're not even into phase one really. Uh, so it's just a, a very, very different way of creating beer and a very different, uh, I don't know, like management. It's almost just, like you're overseeing these barrels rather than brewing beer and packaging. Right, right. Now, that doesn't imply that every single barrel works out and that everything is a success. Um, what is, what do you, you know, because that blending process becomes an important element of creating the finished beers that you release, um, how do you describe that process, you know, all along the kind of lifespan of a barrel? You don't touch it for three months, you know, but um, in that early kind of, you know, on that earlier six month, nine month kind of 
getting a feel for where things are. Um, how do you know something is on a, a right track? And what are some of the warning signs that something may be going a little bit off the rails or may not uh, be, you know, creating something that you're going to be happy with? So, you know, hops are a very important ingredient in these beers. Using aged hops um, and whole cone aged hops, I don't use the pellets. Pellets have only been burned on the few times what we've used it. We've dumped everything. Wow. So um, I, I do not recommend using pellets. Um, I think there is... Maybe BSC, somebody is taking aged cones and pelletizing it. Um, maybe that maybe that works for people. Um, but it's just not a risk when you're aging a beer for three years. It's not a risk that I'm looking to try to save a little bit of time and effort using pelletized cones over whole cone. But uh, as far as development, I mean, we don't we don't touch barrels for. We don't touch them at the six or nine month mark. The earliest we would touch them is at, at a year, um, just to start assessing where that that year that vintage is. Um, probably the earliest we actually are using barrels is eighteen months. Um, we might use earlier barrels in like a three year blend. We would use some barrels that are good. What you're looking for is that hops bitterness to fade out hmm. um, and it it'll take that first year and, and sometimes longer what you will find in some that you know if this isn't going well is uh, they just taste uh, really bad like it can be kind of phenolic yeah that will taste bad but that's fine like that'll age out those barrels are some of the best ones to age out um but if it's like putrid <laughs> yeah which we we have solventy or yeah we've we we really haven't experienced that um i've experienced it at other breweries barrel stock like i've gone in to help breweries see where they're at right you know and it's just like oh man these are these are all bad double <laughs> and so yeah you gotta learn like what flavors will age out and what flavors won't and, um that kind of like green apple flavor, once that starts appearing, uh, the barrels aren't bad, but uh, use them, you know, like use them as a very small percentage of a bigger blend or maybe find that uh, barrel that's old, that has like a really intense flavor and maybe those will blend together. Um, but those, if it's an old barrel with that green apple, like those are... We just dumped some actually. Yeah. We had a, a brandy barrel, nine brandy barrels that were uh, aging already, aged lambic, and it just got that green apple flavor that we know won't age out. Yeah. So, um, I think the interesting thing about blending that people don't understand, they, like you drink these end products and you, you think that, okay, you know, even if you understand blending is a component here to create consistency, um, people don't really understand that a barrel on itself is very, very, very rarely good by itself. It's always missing something that uh, you want more of some other character or it's too strong in this way that uh, it's pretty rare to come across a barrel that's like, 
this one by itself is really yeah. good. And, and when we do find those, we, we try to like grab one of them and package it off as a solo project. But, um, one of the, yeah, yeah one it, of the things I love, you know, in talking to blenders and, you know, Laura Limbach was a great example of this in new Belgium, you know, she's got her notebook and she keeps track of each one of, uh, you know, the fooders and, uh, and barrels that they're tasting. And, you know, she's got her own shorthand and has developed her own language around that and can, you know, with varying happy faces or sad faces or straight faces can, yeah. you know, define where any barrel or, or fooder might be at any stage in that kind of process. What what is your kind of evaluative process look like? Is it just you? Do you work with a team of people? Do you guys communicate? Have you all you know, built a language to describe how each one of these things might be behaving within, you know, your own sphere of utility? Um, yeah, I mean, for many years, it was just me. And then uh, now there's other people that help do this as well. Um, biggest one you're going through is you go through just a quick pass and measure acidity, not even measure, like we don't, everything is sensory yeah. here. So we don't take any actual readings, um, but just where are your high acid, where are your low acid, um, and then where are your like high funk ones, uh, and then taking little notes like this one has a stronger minerality, or this one has like uh, maybe like a slight phenol to it. Just assessing kind of the the range of barrels and across the different years and then from there start saying okay well this one that's a little lower in acidity we blend it with these over here that are a little higher in acidity and this one that is usually acid and the like funkiness of a barrel don't almost never i don't think i've, I've ever had a barrel that's high acid and high huh. funk those are kind of mutually exclusive so Finding those two ends of the spectrum, and then, and then saying, okay, these are the ends that need to get balanced, and then here's, you know, this one is like a nice peach stone fruit flavor in this barrel, and this one is uh, maybe a, it's more vinous of a barrel, or and so then you're blending for the to stack flavors on top of each other um, after you've on the broad picture of balancing the barrels um, and, and especially if you're going to take this blend and go into fruiting then you're you're saying well i think these characteristics as a blend are going to go well with this fruit. right for beers that you release consistent uh, consistently do you have broad definitions for what those blends what you want them to taste like so that you can steer barrels in that kind of direction i mean i'm thoroughly fascinated with that kind of bourbon blend and whiskey blending process where the same mash bill you know aged in the same kinds of barrels just at different places and different times of year can produce wildly different bourbons but then you know each they blend to a flavor profile and barrels get moved into certain kinds of brands because they taste a certain way. Um, and I love that idea, you know, potentially, and, and, and even, you know, classic, uh, Lambic brewers like, uh, uh, Drei Fontaine and take that barrel stock and will push 
different flavor profiles into a brand like Armand Gaston, Cuvée Armand Gaston versus something like Udguz. Um, how do you think about what your brands taste like and how you want those different expressions, um, you know, to, to come through? No, there isn't any like set rigorous box that we're shooting yeah. for. If we're making front parts, it's not like the base blend needs to look like this. And then we put purple raspberries in. You know, it's, it, we don't, uh, there's, there's way too much, there's way too many components that go into right. it to try to be rigorous about these beers. It's, again, it's very, very different than, uh, normal fermentation and what we'd say regular beer. Um, and then even, even when it comes to fruiting, so after you're blending, uh, you know, we, we work with locally grown fruit. So if it was a dry summer, you know, it's those fruits are from the same farm, same hill, same, same plants sure, you know, sure. year over year those those berries are going to taste different um, so working with the seasonality of of the local fruit as well i think that for these beers there's yes you're blending to create uh, balance and and some consistency um, and we certainly have like our fingerprint on uh, on blending like I think our blends typically are higher funk and a little more dirty maybe than, than some other American brewers that are going to be more like citrusy, bright, lean, yeah. you know, and, and I, I like that depth. Then you stack fruit on it. I want that, but I also don't want a uniform product year over year. Like that's part of the beauty of these beers is that, they're an expression of this time that it took to age it, and then this season of fruiting, and this this beer, this vintage of this beer is going to be different than the vintage the following year. I, I, that is the kind of interesting challenge in this, and it's the same challenge that winemakers face, you know, using the sim similar fruit um, that's still going to change year over year, trying to create a through line through those brands that you know where consumers have some expectation but also understanding and embracing that kind of you know seasonal change and year-over-year -year vintage kind of change that, that will will also shift it is an interesting challenge that you face trying to both have an idea for what you're doing but also allowing the that kind of natural um uh, you know, movement of, of flavors and ingredients and, and uh, culture and everything else that kind of happens year over year. Let's um, pivot a little bit and talk about uh, fruit since you brought it up. And uh, I swear after this, we can talk about some untitled art beers and not just talk about uh, <laughs> spontaneous and, and wild and sour beers. Uh, but first, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th, which also happens to be National Repeal Day. To enter, go to www.abs-commercial.com, 
click on keg viking page and fill out the contest form for your chance to win also if you enjoy this podcast and want to support our mission to bring you valuable insights from the world's best brewing minds craft beer and brewing's all access subscriptions are the best way to do it get a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine plus access to our library of video courses special deep dive email and more go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button and join now so when it comes to adding uh, fruit into your lambic style uh, uh, spontaneous beers or lambic and goose style spontaneous beers um, what does that kind of process look like i obviously know that uh, you know for for different fruits you may treat them differently um, are you fruiting in barrels or in wood do you fruit in stainless um are you working through kind of punch down processes what does that typically look like for you to kind of get the extraction that you're looking for while also you know keeping that beer and that re-fermentation alive i view it like uh you age the beer and once the beer is mature then you do your fruiting uh so we don't do fruiting in the barrels we don't do fruiting during the aging or during the uh, early stages of these beers um, you wait until you have mature beer, and if you're doing blend, lambic oil, even if it's like Mertz, you know, and a fooder product, you would wait until the fooder is mature, then you pull off and you do fruit treatments afterward. Um, and <laughs> are there are there you know specific techniques you know that you use while fruiting oh, yeah. in order to kind of. Um, get the right kind of extraction out of fruits. And so we do all of our fruiting in, uh, we use IBC totes, mm -hmm. something I picked up from the cider world. They use IBC totes all the time. And, you know, they're, they're great. It's about a 10 barrel uh, tank that you can dispose of if you need right. to. <laughs> um, and they're cheap and readily available. And for the, relatively short time that the beer sits on fruit. They're, they're perfect for us. They stack. They can, yeah. Um, so most of the time we're uh, fruiting in totes. Um, and then we've done some punch down uh, beers and those are in barrels with the heads removed, turned yeah. up right. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, I like the punch down. Um, I like, the pump over beers as well. Well, techniques, fruiting techniques. There's these different fruiting techniques from the wine right. world that we're really drawing on as we're as we're doing our fruiting because it's it's very very similar, similar goals. Do you find yourself? I mean, what does the fruit itself look like? Are you using fresh whole fruit? Do you find with certain things that uh, you prefer frozen fruit? Are there cases on this side where you may use puree? Um, you know, when you prep those whole fruits, you know, what is, what does that typically look like in terms of, um, you know, pitting stones, you know, et cetera. For raspberries, it is uh, whole fruit that has been frozen. The farmer, they fill five gallon barrels and throw it in the freezer and then we get it from them and we let it thaw out, put it in beer. So it goes through a freeze thaw cycle there. Uh, and then for cherries, uh, we've done mostly just right from the tree into the beer. We don't go through the freeze thaw on those. Um, for 
peaches and apricots. Uh, we will take the pits out, um, but we wait till the fruit is very ripe. So you should just be able to grab it and like, rip mm. it open with your hands and the pit will separate. You need a knife. If you're using a knife to process peaches, like wait a couple days. <laughs> um, blueberries are whole fruit. Freeze thaw cycle on those. Are there any? Uh, are, yeah, yeah. Most of, we don't use any purees for the lambic yeah. side. Um, yeah. Are there any horror stories or fantastic results stories that uh, um, you know that have been uh, learning processes for you? Uh, you know, on the the fruit addition side, something that uh, caught you off guard, either in a positive or negative way. Um, the first time that I did uh, punch down was. Uh, it was a big learning exercise, but it was the result of it was so like surprising how how good this Interesting. was. Interesting, and what uh, we did it with uh, black cap raspberries that forager yeah. brewing foraged, and I never will understand how they can collect that many <laughs> fruit. How much how they collect that much fruit from the wild? You know, the wilderness. They're just walking around the forest. So I'm glad that they did that because it's not something I can yeah. figure out. But uh, yeah, that. How would you describe the, the difference in flavor from a you know the a prior generation of without a punch down versus uh, this kind of punch down process? Um, so for that beer, we did the punch down mostly because it was such a small batch that uh, it just made right. sense that that's. That's the batch size it had to go into, or the vessel it had to go into. Um, but comparing traditional, um, where you just put the fruit in the beer and let it sit ferment for two, three months, versus a punch down. Uh, punch down is much faster, uh, so you're pretty much only doing it during active fermentation. I mean, you're only punching it down during right. active fermentation. Um, and then you might let it sit for a week or two after that to continue infusing the flavor where if I did the same raspberries in a, a tote in, in a batch, um, we, you know, you'd be waiting three months for it to all have fermented and fall and melt, that kind of stuff. So it's much faster. The fruit, I think, I feel like the fruit flavor, like the jamminess mm -hmm. of the fruit expresses more in a punch down. Um, Brightness and intensity yeah. or. I, I feel like the, the sharpness and the acidity of the fruit is hmm. mellower in punch downs, though they do tend to also pick up some acidity from the right. oxygen exposure. There isn't a ton of oxygen exposure, but after packaging, right. it picks up some. It's still re still fermenting, and so uh, it's scrubbing some oxygen as it goes. Yeah. 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 Well, let's pivot here and talk about the untitled art side of the business. Um, talk to me about the formation of untitled art. You know, Now, clearly, your first foray was in the, the funk factory uh, side of the, of creating a spontaneous and wild beer. But at some point you decided that you also wanted to create beer and other kinds of styles and started 
the Untitled Art brand. Talk to me about the formation of that and the kind of creative idea behind it. Um, yeah, so I drink other styles of beer than just spontaneous beer. So um, I, you know, I, I like a, a wide variety of styles. And a lot of my time at festivals um, for when it was just Funk Factory, uh, you meet other brewers in the industry, become friends with them, and you like their beers. You, I, I see what's going on on the East Coast, what's going on the West Coast, what's going on. Down in Florida, they're always doing something silly. So you see what's going on down there. Those silly and, Floridian brewers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and can we put more fruit in it? Come yeah, back home. Florida did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then come back home, and there, there just was a lack of what I want to say creativity or exploring in, in beer on this well, this like front edge right. of beer development. Um, and so for a while I was trying that, skip that. Um, so I talked to uh, Octopi Brewing here in town where I was already working with them to get wort for Funk Factory. Um, I, and they're a contract brewery primarily, um, in Madison. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and I talked to him and just proposed, like, what if we started a different label and made the styles of beers that a Guzria should not right. be making? <laughs> and, um, and, and my hope was that we would just have an example of these styles for the Midwest. Or for Initially, I just thought Wisconsin. Um, and... So that's what we set off to do is just, uh, you know, what is a New England IPA? Because it doesn't exist in Wisconsin. So let's make that, uh, you know, every every style trying to go through the, uh, you know, pastry stouts and Florida rice and all these oddball styles, uh, these new New beer styles that are coming up. I see them at festivals. I, I see people excited about these. I like them. I want to, I want to drink these without having to. Again, I didn't want to pay for shipping. You know, <laughs> I started doing lambic because I didn't want to pay for shipping from Belgium. I don't want to do. I don't want to pay for shipping from the East Coast to drink a juicy IPA. So uh, let's just start a brewery. Fair yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that's how it started. Uh, and then it also became this awesome uh, collaborative collaboratory outlet for me. At Punk Factory, we don't have the ability to do a lot of collaborations because we're so niche in what we do, and we're very very small. Right. Um, so it it became a way to say to my friends who were doing different styles, like, "Hey, come on up. We can hang out and make a beer." Up at this playground of a facility and yeah so that's that was the start of untitled art and then there was a art festival in florida that reached out to us i got an email one day from untitled art fair and i was like oh great here's my season assist right and inside uh it turned out that one of the ladies that was running it is from madison 
and her dad had sent her a picture of our beer and asked if it was her. She was like, no. Uh, and she reached out to us saying, you know, we, we love the brand. We, you know, we have the same name. Like, would you guys be interested in sponsoring the art fair? And so that's what started our distribution out of state or even thinking about selling outside of the state. Um, and we found a great distributor in Florida that has grown and grown. So you went from taking some of these creative styles and being inspired by some of this development that was happening in other parts of the country and wanting to bring that back to your local market and then kind of dialed those in and started, uh, you know, figuring them out and creating some compelling examples of these and then started shipping them back out and distributing. And now what does that distribution footprint look like for untitled art? How far out do you all get with, uh, with the Untitled Art Beer? We currently have 23 states. Wow. And there's a little bit that goes overseas as we have availability, but. About how much volume are you producing per year for Untitled Art? Good amount. A good amount? <laughs> <laughs> it's top secret, huh? <laughs> I like the cloak that we have. All with, right, all right, uh, fair enough. With Octopi, like they have their, what they make, but I like yeah. the cloak that we have. So. That's all right. I, I wanted to ask, but I respect your uh, <laughs> your secrecy there. Talk to me. You have a bit of a unique approach to distribution. You know, when it comes to uh, you know most ways that distribution happens in the country, beer brands will sell distribution rights to distributors. The franchise laws in those states tend to then. Um, be pretty strict in main, you know, governing those kinds of relationships. But you've tried to focus on taking a different avenue and approach to that. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I've always had this pessimistic attitude towards distributors or not so much the distributors, but the, the structure that breweries are forced to work with when working with distributors. And so when we, when I started on Tile Art, <laughs> my goal in the beginning was to give Octopi the recipe and then sign a local Wisconsin distributor and the beer just goes from Octopi to the distributor and I just sit back and do nothing and get a paycheck. You know, that'd be great. <laughs> sure. But uh, the week. Living the dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The week before our first beer was to be packaged, uh, the distributor we were almost about to sign with uh, sent back a revision of the agreement, and it took out all the like little special things that we, you know, like here's where we want the marketing budget, blah blah. Uh, they took it all out, everything that we had talked about, and they knew it's like, well, you guys are, you guys. Our packaging next week so take it or leave it and in wisconsin you can self-distribute so i said leave it we uh, got some friends to help drive penske rental trucks and sell and deliver the back the first batch then ever since then that pessimism that i've had of distributors was really solidified and so as we looked to so we self-distributed for a long time um and then as we looked to different states, 
um, I wanted to make sure franchise rights were not going to prohibit our movement and growth and, and needs in the future for whatever reason. Whether and, and I can talk about different reasons that have come up, um, but uh, we have we for every state we'll go in and find their state statute that creates franchise rights and put that in the contract and say we're operating outside of this um, and that I don't have to prove just cause or whatever they say um, for terminating the agreement. And then I set the value of the brand. We agree it's set at $1. So that's the only contracts that I'm willing to sign. Um, And I believe that it creates a fair and level playing field for breweries and distributors, this relationship. You know, for, it's, it's insane to me that for the beer world only, franchise rights are written into state statute. Not just in, it's not just a common thing in the industry that distributors want it in their contracts that they sign with right. breweries. This is in state statute. This is insane to me. It's the power, it. the power of lobbying yeah. and the power of special interest kind of, you know, pushing for that kind of thing. And, you know, to be fair at the time, the most of those laws were pushed through, you had a small number of producers and a yeah. large number of small local family owned distributors and all of those small local family owned distributors were fearful that the large mega brands were going to pull their business and leave you know leave these small distributorships hanging and so they worked legally to accomplish that now you know the script is completely flipped now with as consolidation has just ripped through the distribution market and now we have so few distributors in most markets and so many small breweries um you know and now you have these large distributorships that are taking advantage of the three-tier requirements for breweries to sell through them in order to even reach consumers in a lot of states and also taking advantage of these incredibly strong franchise laws that you know, were designed in a different era to protect for a different reason, but have not been adjusted on any of those state books yeah. since. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a model that. that does not make sense for craft breweries. Right. It makes sense if you're the distributor for Anheuser-Busch and you don't want them to just one day decide they're going to go to a different distributor and you have this massive infrastructure that you've built with staff and delivery vehicles and right. warehousing and all the technology that's behind it. Yeah, certainly that should be protected, but that again is very easy to do in a contract sans state statute. You right. right. Don't need the government to be involved in this contract. So, um, yeah, I, but that's a I, nice I, way of working together to, you know, find the people that you partner with and say, 
we're not going to try to get a whole bunch of cash out of you up front for the rights to these. And in return, you, you know, we want you to perform for us and we want to produce beer that you sell for us. And we will both, you know, set this contractual expectation around how we're going to work with each other and renew that where it may, you know, when it makes sense for us and potentially not renew that when it doesn't make sense or it stops making sense for either one of us and make sure, I mean, everyone in any kind of business relationship wants to feel that the people that they're working with are responsive and have an incentive to continue to, you know, promote and each other and work with and for each other. Um, you know, and the franchise laws tend to kill some of that and give all the leverage to one side of, of the equation and none to the other. Um, what have been some of those situations where you found that this type of contract has been uh, a useful thing? And uh, yeah. have there have there been any also some you know situations on the other side where it may not have been the ideal way to you know to have structured that relationship? I'm not gonna like name who the distributor. Absolutely, are. absolutely. Um, but so there's been instances where a distributorship closes, yeah. goes out of business, uh, just because they're out of business and not actively selling your brand and distributing your product does not mean that they, that their rights to your brand goes away as well. So if we didn't have the contract that we have, that distributor, that distributor closes and we want to go to a different distributor, that new distributor or we would have to buy our brands back from right. an entity that that's closed. an asset in their bankruptcy filing that then, you know, that they own, which, you know, is kind of insane for you trying to operate a business and sell things. Yeah. Uh, so we're able to switch. We've had to do this twice. Uh, a distributorship no longer exists and we need to find the replacement distributor for that state or that territory and we're able to do it very fast and a lot of times without any hiccups in the market um, but that's only because our contract allows for that there's been times where uh, personnel change happens at the distributorship and the person who used to handle our brand like that used to be one of their accounts that salesperson that person left and the new person's taken over or maybe it's a couple different people and our brand got lost in the mix right and we noticed and hey, they didn't buy anything, anything from us this month and, oh the next month they didn't either this is weird so if a distributor just in this case if they just kind of forgot right but if a distributor for some reason chose not to sell your brand you have to buy your brand back from them or a new distributor has to say that it's worth the investment for them to purchase the brand rights from the distributor who doesn't want to handle your stuff anymore i heard from friends in the industry uh, that have gone through this process uh, buying your brand rights for a territory can cost more than it cost the brewery to start the whole brewery you know it's, so it's kind of a, I think it's an insane structure that breweries have to have to operate in. So um, this isn't just me saying I want to be able to leave willy nilly from a 
distributorship who's otherwise working. It's right. There's only if there if there is a problem. And and personally, I think if if you're out there doing your job and if, if you believe you're the best distributor in that territory, then there's there's never going to be a problem, right? Maybe you signed ten more brands and now you're not focused on that one brand that used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, clearly with 23 states in your footprint, it hasn't proven to be a, um, you know, to hurt your ability to find distributors that are willing to work that way. It also seems like it may give a leg up, especially to smaller craft distributors who may not have six figures in their bank account to, you know, to buy brand rights, you know, in order to get started on something like that. And, I'm using six figures as a just broad, uh, you know, but it can be expensive in you know, what some, you know, craft beer brands will ask for uh, in order, you know, for those rights can be rather expensive and prohibitive for some, you know, some smaller distributors. And, uh, you know, and so in that way, it also potentially creates another line of products that some smaller craft distributors can then sell. Um, have you found that that's actually helped the growth of the brand? We have worked with both. Our, we currently work with both big distributorships that have that kind of bank funding and could purchase our brand for six figures, you know, whatever. Uh, and we work with very, very small distributors who maybe they just started in the last year. Have Have there been any downsides to this kind of arrangement outside of the fact that Untitled Art as a brand is not necessarily able to sell brand rights and take the you know capital potentially raised from selling those brand rights and put it into the kind of you know to fund growth of the brewery you know that is for a lot of small craft breweries a way that they are able to fund growth outside of you know kind of debt financing or equity fi uh, uh, funding you know you trying to grow it in a different way becomes a little more challenging i i would from my vantage point, you know, suspect that the con that relationship with Octopi and the fact that the beer is being brewed there does scale down some of the capital requirements for your brewery to grow. But, uh, you know, how has that affected Untitled Arts growth otherwise? Yeah, I think that there's cases where breweries have sold their brand rights to fund growth. Um, and that has worked out well for them. Um, but there's also a number of cases where they sold their brand rights to fund the new development. And you know what? That new distributor is selling 60% of what you were selling, what you were self-distributing. And you built a brewery to double what you're capable of doing. It, it becomes, uh, becomes a burden. Uh, you no longer own your own brand rights. Yeah, I think you'd be much better off selling equity in the brewery and owning your brand rights, or just don't get into a situation where they own your brand rights. But uh, but then you can't sell the brand rights. To, yeah, I I don't know. I I feel like as soon as you sell those rights to somebody and you can't get out of it without a huge financial hurdle they are they own as much of your brewery as you think you do 
So. Sure, sure. Let's talk about building a brand like Untitled Art. You know, it's uh, in, in this current craft beer environment, local, yeah, and this connection to the people making the beer and this story of, of local beer has become a very powerful way for small craft breweries to sell beer. You're still a small craft brewery, but are taking a different approach. Um, it is more about the product and it's about the brand position and presence and aesthetic and, um, and then the beer in the package with this, you know, as, as you mentioned, this kind of cloak or veil between, uh, um, you know, that direct, uh, you know, details about the brewery itself and the, the end brand. Um, it's a different kind of way to create an idea around craft beer. Doesn't make the, you know, there's no wrong or right method. It's just a, an interesting, different aesthetic approach. Um, how has Untitled Art found ways to connect with consumers across 23 states without this kind of traditional network of brand representatives and marketing folks and, yeah. uh, you know, pint nights and all of the other means by which, you know, craft breweries tend to build brands. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in some sense, by complete accident. Um, <laughs> it was very intentional that uh, the branding of Untitled has been very, very intentional. I didn't, I, I felt exhausted, like to know this brewery's IPA, I got to know this cartoon character and got to remember that name to know that this one is an IPA, the other cartoon character is a stout. And I, you know, it, it becomes hard to like keep it all put together. And then also, uh, as a, producer like if you're that brewery you got to keep coming up with these different characters for your cans and for your beers and you have to find the name and the backstory and the it's you're building these characters essentially as part of your brand and so i wanted to do away with that um also breweries write a big description on the beer. Like it was made with this and went through this process and aging. Duh, and like uh, a lot of times you see they're using, Hey, we made a, an IPA. It has uh, galaxy hops and it has, uh, you know, whatever the, you're, you're writing a description saying the ingredients and also saying it tastes like this uh, to influence the consumer. So, that when that person drinks it, they look for, if you say, oh, this is a grapefruit bomb of IPA, it, it could taste nothing like grapefruit by the time it actually hits that customer, but they're going to review it tasting for grapefruit and they're going to taste grapefruit, even right. though it might not be there. And so you're, you're skewing the consumer's understanding of what your product is and, and intentionally, uh, for the purpose of getting a higher untapped score or for the purpose of dropping some keywords to sell more volume or whatever it is. Um, and so I, it, it goes back to why we started it. I wanted to just bring these styles that are being done at the forefront and the periphery of beer. I wanted to bring them to the general consumer. Um, and 
I don't think that I need to say anything more than I'm looking over the shelf. Pineapple upside down sherbet. That's all we say for that beer. I don't, I don't give you any description of the product. The name of the beer is just that. We don't give any of our beers names. We name it the style. We don't put any description on our beers. Um, at first, I didn't even put uh, alcohol percent. I didn't because we don't legally have to in right. Wisconsin. Uh, I wouldn't put uh, if it had lactose, um, which obviously that was like a quick change I made because. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I, I understand, like, there's allergens. Okay, so we list all the allergen stuff. Um, and we list ABV because we sell many states now. Um, but it is scaled down to just the bare bones information that you need. We did start putting the hops varieties on uh, our IPAs because we would do versions. So we'd do, like, a juicy IPA and version one, two, three, four, five. And so to help people know which can is which we would put at the bottom version one and it's right. this hops. Uh, but other than that, like we don't disclose any information about the beer other than what is felt to be absolutely necessary. And maybe it's because I also had no financial pressure with this brand. This is all just kind of for fun. Right. Uh, I, I uh, didn't care if it, sold super well um <laughs> yeah, right well like, all right then there's that <laughs> yeah uh meaning like i don't i don't want to write this exhaustive description and tasting notes for a product just to sell more volume right like i think the beer can just stand on its own and if you open it up and you think that this stout tastes like chocolate or if you open it up and think it tastes like coffee like there like good that's what that's what you should do that's like that's how i got into beer like we would open beer we, you know blind tastings were sure, a thing sure. you know you drink the beer and and think about it just drinking whatever you're eating a meal you're drinking a beer having a glass of wine whatever it is just like instead of consuming that thing without thinking about it this forces people to think about it a little more um, and on the flip side, it made my life a lot easier because I don't have to come up with unique characters every time or write a tasting note description on it every time. And, um, so that, that was great part of the branding, but yeah, it's, it has no identity then. Right. So, uh, as I talk to other breweries who are starting their brewery or launching a different side brand. Um, this is not, this is like opposite of the advice I give people. You, you, it's all about creating that connection to a consumer. Right. And for entire art, I took the opposite way. I was like, I'm, this is going to be void of any connection. Right. The, the only appealing part is the artwork, um, that we dress the cans with. And, and that's super fun working with artists to, uh, create artwork that, feels like the beer without having any proper nouns in the artwork. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it's a, if it's a peach sour, like you can't draw peaches, right? Right. Um, the whole thing, so, are you familiar with the comedian Bill Hicks? He you know has that fantastic 
bit on marketing and advertising and I won't get into it too much, but there was this moment where he's like, I know the marketing and advertising people in the audience are like, Ooh, he's taking the anti-marketing and advertising approach. That's going to do well. You know, you like even your reaction to this world of marketing brand building is becomes its own effort in brand building. It's just a completely opposite approach for that. But it is also interesting in the same way that, you know, modern artists, especially abstract expressionists, you know, worked to push the hand of the artist out of the the work itself. Yeah. And it became this conscious effort on the the part of these creators to pull, you know, that kind of direct human connection and let the the things stand on their own. The question that I have though is like what makes somebody to grab it off a shelf, you know, like it's, it's so that, there, it's in a case, it's against like, there's pretty pictures on yeah. the label, but there's pretty pictures on it. Like everyone's got pretty good looking labels yep. these days. Like yep. as and a consumer, so, like, why do I grab that one? Why do I, you know, buy that one when it's, when it's there? And, and that's where I say it's, it's been a, a happy accident because, um, people in Wisconsin do not know that untitled art is a Wisconsin brand. People in Texas don't know it's a Texan brand. It has no identity. So, which should go against us, right? It should, nobody, it should be viewed as like a Costco brand or something, right? Yeah. But instead, everybody views it as their hometown brand. And I don't know why, but it's awesome. Like, I'm happy for it, but it's definitely, I don't know how to recreate that. I, I don't know how to advise somebody on a branding strategy that would that would do the same thing it's uh, it's almost mark rothko-esque in the way that the viewer becomes a part of of the work and uh and their experience of it becomes the thing that and the the thing that it is it's uh it's been an interesting approach and um and novel i was, I was standing in line at a taco truck uh, a couple of years ago and it was in front of a bottle shop and some girl ahead of me uh, had a can of untiled art and was talking to her friend. And her friend was like, did you know this is made in Wisconsin? Like, did, did you know this was made here? And she was like, oh, my gosh, no way. Like, and, and I'm just standing right behind her and you're like, this is perfect. This is <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, it, it's funny that we actually haven't talked about the specific beers or hard seltzers that you make, all of which are actually rather interesting in which – um, you know, we here at Craft Beer and, Beer and Brewing Magazine have uh, grown quite fond of. We may have to do that another time, though, because we're starting to run out of time. Um, way we typically end the podcast is with a question. Hold on, I'm going to jump in there though, because you made a comment earlier, like about the seltzers, and it's kind of this like sheepish territory that you don't want to get into or not that you don't want to get into, but I think like your audience is sheepish about it. Uh, it's viewed as this, um, uh, like the black sheep of, of brewing right now, of beer and brewing right now. In fairness, right? I did an entire episode with Chris Colby who authored how to brew hard seltzer, um, a couple weeks ago, and we haven't shied away with it. And we are, we've got a whole issue in our 2021 lineup on dedicated to beyond beer. Um, you know, because I do think that it is interesting. There is a craft approach to this 
it is something that craft brewers should not feel embarrassed about, even though as we have these conversations, there are plenty of craft brewers listening to this who will argue with me on that point. And I will accept that and, and be fair about it. But uh, from your standpoint, as somebody that makes spontaneous lambic inspired beer, yeah. and then also has this untitled art brand brewing hazy IPAs and hyper fruited kettle sours. And also there's a Kool-Aid beer coming out this week. Like, I, yeah, it's a different flavor. It's a different product. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a different creation. But I think what I, what I would say is that no matter what you're making, I think for Funk Factory, it's hard to explore other styles because we're so niche into this one style. And there's other breweries that are, you know, you might be known to be a German brew house, right? Like you only do German style, whatever it is, right? But for most breweries who you're already making IPAs and stouts and fruit beers and whatever, right? Like why, I don't understand why a brewery would shy away from seltzers. Um, I think, I think White Claw is disgusting because of the flavors that they add to it. And it tastes very artificial to me. Um, but the seltzer base, like as a, as a fermented product, right. That is technically beer. Uh, I agree. It looks nothing like beer in the brewing process and the creation of it. But like, I think breweries need to understand this is a new base, just like when West coast breweries swore they would never make new England IPAs, <laughs> you know, sure, and, sure. and they fought it and fought it and fought it. But what are they doing now? Like yeah. you can't, you can't like, uh, you know, it's just the, it's the most recent iteration of an evolution in beer that a certain group of breweries are going to write off and say, this is not beer, but you know what? I bet you that 90% of the beer that that, that, that brewery makes at some point in history, there was another group of brewers that said that is not beer. <laughs> all, all beer is hard seltzer, right? Not all hard seltzer is beer, but all beer is hard seltzer. <laughs> um, what does what does success ultimately look like for Funked Factory and for Untitled Art? How do you define it? What's what do you have an end goal in mind? Um, what what would you define success as? I think they're very different for Funk Factory and Untitled Art. Funk Factory is a passion project. It's never been about a financial success. Um, so just seeing it exist is the success. For Untitled Art, it's uh, initially it was let's just create examples, even if it's like a B to the best example, if, if it's not quite there, but it's an example. Let's just create it and make it accessible for people. And then it's become no, you know, we can actually, we can, we can really make these very well. Uh, so becoming. So we're making these styles, but we're making it at a tier that we're emulating, right? So it's, it's become the perfect emulation of the very exciting styles of beer. And then now it's to create the next wave, create the styles that haven't been created yet. The styles that haven't been created yet. 
what's next after seltzer we're gonna have to talk about that more at another date but yeah. i can't wait to see what you come up with levi uh nearly two thousand breweries across the u.s canada and mexico partner with gnd chillers get haze for days with carrie biohaze from bsg inquire about a free craft brew sample pack from five star chemicals and supply yakima valley hops is your hop source whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels abs commercial is giving away a keg viking keg washer live on december 5th and craft beer and brewings all access and subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast levi if people want to learn more about uh, funk factory or and or untitled art um where should they go to find more out about you Oh, social media, right? It's where everything is now. So Instagram and Facebook, mostly what we do. At Untitled Art Bev, it's Untitled Art. At Punk Factory, it's Punk Factory. At Punk Factory, it's real. Um, cool. Yeah, that's that's a spot. Well, check them out. Um, if you're in one of the 23 states in the, in the distribution uh, footprint, grab one of the florida vice uh, hard seltzers it has been one of our favorites this year in the entire hard seltzer space and we've published to that uh, effect in the magazine before we recently tasted uh, the cherry pie sour a la mode or yeah sour cherry pie a la mode um really loved that beer and uh you know of course uh, you can read reviews of funk factory beers and uh, in previous issues of craft beer and brewing too uh levi funk funk factory and untitled art thanks for joining me on the podcast of enjoy the conversation thanks for having yeah, me cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.